Pints for Jack, Season 4, Episode 27. Another tribute to Walter Hooper. Hey everyone, welcome to Pints for Jack. Now, normally on Tuesdays we are discussing a letter from the Screwtape Letters, but I'm postponing that episode until late today because I wanted to continue the tribute to Walter Hooper, the former secretary of C.S. Lewis, and the man who has published, popularized, and kept in print many of the works of C.S. Lewis. This is part of a broader tribute among several podcasters. It began last week when William O'Flaherty released on his podcast, All About Jack, a tribute episode to Walter Hooper, where he was interviewing a series of scholars and writers and other people who had met him. We then followed suit a few days later on the day of Walter's funeral. And next, we passed the baton to the guys from the Lamppost Listener, Daniel and Phil. And we're now back here again, talking to more people whose lives have been touched by Walter Hooper. And we begin with James Como, Professor Emeritus at the City University of New York, founding member of the New York C.S. Lewis Society, and author, most recently, of C.S. Lewis, A Very Short Introduction. I first met Walter in 1969 or 1970, when my wife and I made a trip to Oxford, and I thought to meet Walter, I had a letter of introduction from Clyde Kilby, and I found Walter residing at Keeble College, where he was taking care of uh, Catherine Farah, who was by then a widow, and their daughter. And uh, we knocked on the door at about quarter to three, and it was opened by a chap in overalls splattered with paint, a handyman came to the door and I asked, is Father Hooper here? And he said, oh, one, one minute, please, one minute. Come in and wait inside here. And about 10 minutes later, the same man came down the stairs with his collar, smiling, of course, at the joke he had played on us. And um, that was 3 p.m. My wife had a very bad headache and he had some, some pills for her that fixed the headache immediately. And Catherine Farr's daughter served tea. I'll zoom to the end of the meeting. That was 3 p.m. We did not part until 2 a.m. the following morning. So we spent 11 hours together. Now, Alexandra by then had gone back to her hotel. And we talked and talked. And we had dinner together with Alexandra. And then she left. And then he and I took a small walking tour of Oxford. It was my first trip there. And he told me some more about Lewis. Had a pint or two. And then walked back, he to Keeble and I to wherever we were staying at the time. I forget where. And that was, that was it. That was the first meeting. It lasted 11 hours. We became very, very fast friends. Little did I know, I, I, I already knew I was meeting a man, and I meant to meet a man who knew C.S. Lewis and who was intimate with his works. And Walter had already done some, some work editing. I think Christian Reflections had already come out. And um, I had no idea that I was meeting the man, you know, the man who would become the, um, I want to say catalyst, but really more than catalyst of what would become Lewis's, the breadth and range of Lewis's reputation in the following decades. Walter's death is the end of an era, I think. And without Walter, 
there will be those who disagree with me, I think, but many who will agree. Without Walter, Lewis's reputation would not have the reach or the richness that it has, nor would it have developed as quickly. Now, it would have become what it is, but I don't think with the uh, organic uh, wealth of information that we have now, but for Walter Hooper. At the first meeting, I know I was struck by two things about Walter. One was his generosity of spirit. Anybody who, who's known Walter knows how what an amiable man he is. He's a soft-spoken Southerner, you know, with a very sly sense of humor. And that was the second thing I noticed about Walter. None of that was undercut over the 50 years since that I knew him. Uh, Walter championed Lewis's legacy, I think, in a number of ways. First, of course, is in what he produced, what, what he brought forth of Lewis, the books that he edited. And some of these were apparently simple collections of essays, but he had to dig those out from hither and yon. I mean, he had to find those. And the second, of course, is the overwhelmingly laborious work that he did with his own companion and with the collected letters of C.S. Lewis. Now, I, I'm sometimes amused. Back in the day, as we say, you know, back in the day, uh, we didn't know much about C.S. Lewis, and we didn't have much available. And his works were actually not coming back into print, but Walter made sure they were. I made several visits to publishers with Walter, having been a founding member and still a founding member of the New York C.S. Lewis Society, and that impressed publishers. I mean, it showed them, oh, my goodness, that there's interest going on here. Back when we started the Lewis Society in 1969, very little was known about Lewis and very little was available. Now, of course, there's a lot of Lewis and a lot of knowledge about Lewis that's taken for granted, <laughs> that we had to dig out even if we could find it. That's Walter Hooper. And having much more to read of Lewis's than we had, that's not solely, of course, but largely the doing of Walter Hooper. There must have been five Walter Hoopers. I, I don't know how he did it. I had the same impression of Lewis during World War II. There was just so much that he did. Anybody who knew Walter came away thinking they were a friend of his. And, and that, you know, it's hard to communicate the quiddity of the man, but that's one thing. In my family, and having known him for 50 years, he became Uncle Walter to my children. He became my wife's ally, as I, as I said. You know, anytime he was present in the house and Alexandra and I quibbled about this or that, he just took her side automatically, automatically. Alexandra's mother, South American, said that Walter looked like James Mason, only handsomer. And without batting an eye, he said, well, that's, that's because you look like Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. And they became James Mason and Hedy Lamar to each other. To me, he became something of a big brother, a reliable big brother who gave me advice, steered me in the right directions, looked out for me here and there. So Walter had lots of friends. He was a friend to the New York C.S. Lewis Society very early on. He visited more than once. He visited a number of times. As I said, when he passed through New York, he would stay with us. In fact, I visited his home in Reedsville once and met his family. Wonderful, wonderful mother. Oh, my goodness. Um, there's another story that means so much to me. I, 
I was on sabbatical in Oxford with my wife and toddler son. And he and his mother and his aunt were at our house for dinner the second night we were there. And I got a call from my brother saying that our father had died. Devastating. So I had to rush back. But I did so with a tranquil heart because he and his mother and Twiggy, an ironic name, I knew would take good care of my family. And on an earlier trip, my father accompanied us to England, my wife and me, and he met Walter. He loved Walter and Walter loved him. But he wanted to see the hospital in the Midlands where he had served during World War II. So we were driving and I was driving like Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willows. And my father said, you know, son, I think, I think St. Christopher jumped out a mile back. St. <laughs> Christopher, you know, the patron saint of travelers at the time. Walter laughed. He laughed for years at that. I was going to give up. And Walter whispered in my ear, don't you dare give up. You don't know how much this means. And I found it. it was now a turkey farm. And... Um, it, it meant so much to my father. I have a picture of him in front of his old barracks. And, but for Walter, I would have turned around. So there you go, the older brother. Now I find myself still doing, people who have had a loss do this. You know, I, I, I can't wait to tell so-and-so this. And I'm still doing that. It's been a week. You know, I can't, in this space-time continuum, you will not be telling him anything. <laughs> you know? um, I miss my friend. Anybody who knew him will miss him. I am very glad that he went home as serenely as we're told he did. And um, who knows what's going on now? He probably has the kettle on. And, and if he knows about these tributes, he's being amused. Because, I, you know, knowing Walter, he, for all his achievement, for all of his repute, he treated everybody who worked in the Lewis Vineyard as his peer. He had no heirs, no heirs at all. And I don't know how many accomplished people, men and women, you can say that about. Um, so that, that made him very, very extraordinary, I think. Next up, we have Owen A. Barfield, grandson and trustee of the Owen Barfield Literary Estate. Well, I met Walter Hooper through my grandfather, Owen Barfield, who, of course, was the good friend, another inkling, a uh, good friend of C.S. Lewis, that is. Uh, and Walter has just always been there. He's been part of the work that grandfather was doing. So grandfather became C.S. Lewis's trustee in 1963, so before I was born. And Walter Hooper and grandfather had regular meetings, and I regularly heard his name. Where he came to the fore and where I most uh, came across Walter Hooper is when grandfather passed away in 1997, December, and then Walter Hooper became his trustee. So Walter Hooper was grandfather's literary trustee. And from then on, I had a lot more to do with him because, of course, all the literary um, affairs and words, papers and books were passed over to Walter Hooper. So Walter Hooper's um, contribution, I think, from the period that I knew him best, which was the early 2000s onwards, grandfather passed away in 97, then he was working on the letters. So he would talk a lot about 
his work and how he was editing the letters and how it was a big job and how it was overwhelming him and this this kind of thing. So, you know, that's my feeling for it. But the other strong feeling I have is there's a collection in North Carolina at the University of North Carolina of Walter's correspondence with grandfather. So in the, the early period, in the 60s and 70s, when grandfather was the literary trustee and Walter was the administrator, the correspondence with them Walter placed in a university collection. And I, who am now a trustee myself and deal with other university collections, are very aware that there's a collection of paperwork there that may or may not be important, but I think it's something that's been rather overlooked. So it's worth looking at to understand how the C.S. Lewis literary estate was first run for the first 20 years or so. The collection of papers that documents that is in the North Carolina University Library. Coincidentally, uh, on my honeymoon, I bumped into him when we were in Orvieto, a town in the centre of uh, Italy. It was on Corpus Christi and there was a carnival, a parade uh, for Corpus Christi. And my wife, my new wife, uh, and I were just sort of walking, wandering around the streets. And <laughs> that's Walter Hooper. So he, he sort of turns up and he's always got a lot of energy, a lot of anecdotes. He was a sort of kind of a busy person on his way somewhere. So there's, there's this sense of always being there, always being in the background, but always slightly being busy or moving on with something else or having something else to do. So it's this kind of crossing paths, never quite knowing when and where, but there's been a lot of that um, throughout my life. I think. We'll now hear from Abigail Santamaria, author of Joy, poet, seeker, and the woman who captivated C.S. Lewis. How I first heard of Walter, well, of course, he's a legend in the C.S. Lewis world. And, you know, when did I first hear? I guess my first visit to the Wade Center was in 2003. And that was probably when I fully grasped and understood the scope of his legacy. Uh, of course, I had seen his name uh, around before that uh, on things. And then when did I first meet Walter was, I think it was in 2009, give or take a year, on a research trip to Oxford, doing research for my biography of Joy Davidman. And he was very gracious. And uh, I think that, I think it was Michael Ward who actually made the introduction and arranged for us to meet. And we had tea and we walked around Oxford together. And I went to his apartment at one time for another meeting. And he served me tea and his apartment was wonderfully quirky and eclectic and endearingly so, as Walter himself was. And he gave me um, a picture of his cat, the Blessed Lucy of Narnia, to take with me as a souvenir, which I still have in a box somewhere. And every once in a while, I, I'm rummaging through you know, some, old, some old things and come across that card. And it's a great... A great memory. Um, his greatest contribution to Lewis's legacy and, and scholarship has to be the collection of letters, the, the volumes of letters. I just cannot imagine how I would have done my work on Joy's final years without having that carefully annotated collection by my side and on my desk. It was such a gift to my work, and I know I know it has been to so many other scholars as well and will be for all of, all of earthly time. Father Dwight Longenecker, blogger and author of Immortal Combat, Confronting the Heart of Darkness. 
Well, I, I first met Walter Hooper in print rather than in person uh, because I was a student at Bob Jones University, a very fundamentalist Protestant school in South Carolina. Uh, being an American, I grew up here. I went there for undergraduate work and I was an English and speech major. So I studied an awful lot of um, English writers and was became afflicted with that terrible disease, Anglophilia, <laughs> the love of all things English. And C.S. Lewis is one of the big uh, factors in that, along with uh, T.S. Eliot, who's always been a, um, a favorite of mine. And so that's where I first came across Walter Hooper, of course, when he's um, editing um, C.S. Lewis's books, especially his uh, the collections of essays that, that Walter put together. And uh, they were a great help for me in thinking through my faith and finding a reasonable and a rational um, explanation for the faith, which was supernatural uh, in its defense, but not superstitious. And uh, so that's where I first met Walter. And so when I had the opportunity then after graduating from Bob Jones to go to actually go and study in Oxford, wow, that was, that was, I couldn't believe, you know, that God blessed me in that way. So that was the opportunity to go to Oxford and, and get um, immersed in the whole C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Oxford world. When I was a student, I used to go down to St. Mary Magdalene Church, where I think he was actually um, an assistant priest for some time, because he was an Anglican priest at the time. And I was a bit too shy. I knew who he was, and I knew he was in Oxford, but I, I didn't like to go and make myself known to him as, a, you know, I just didn't feel it was the done thing to go sort of running up to some celebrity saying, oh, I really would like to meet you. So it wasn't until many years later when we were both actually Catholics that our paths crossed and we attended a couple of different conferences and I was able to sit with him at dinner and chat with him, get to know him and, and, and thank him for his writings. And then it was the opportunity I had for him to ask him about his meeting with Bob Jones. In his biography of Lewis, which he wrote with, I think, with uh, Roger Lancelin Green, Walter Hooper actually mentions Bob Jones Jr. Now, Bob Jones Jr. was the son of the founder, Bob Jones. And Bob Jones Jr. was a very uh, educated and, and a very sophisticated man who'd actually traveled um, over to England and, and Europe and was um, really very cultured. And Walter Hooper met Bob Jones and asked him what he thought of C.S. Lewis, because on one of Bob Jones's trips to England, he actually uh, went to Oxford and met C.S. Lewis. Uh, so there's a real connection. A lot of people not, wouldn't wouldn't know about that. Dr. Bob Jones uh, from Bob Jones University actually did meet C.S. Lewis and had a conversation with him. And Walter Hooper <laughs> tells the story that, if I remember correctly, Walter says, I popped uh, a peppermint into my mouth to hide the smell of tobacco smoke uh, and asked Dr. Bob what he thought of C.S. Lewis. And Dr. Bob said, and I'll imitate Dr. Bob's voice, Dr. Bob said, that man smokes tobacco and drinks liquor, but I believe he's a born again Christian. <laughs> so, and that would be perfectly typical of, of the Bob Jones attitude. Um, the prejudices being pretty strong, but at the same time being willing to look past those things and recognize that in C.S. Lewis, he, he was a, a brother and a brother in arms. I, I think his contribution is one of First of all, uh, humility. He was um, a, a softly spoken gentleman. He didn't put himself forward. If I had made friends with him like I, like I wanted to, he would have been very welcoming, I'm sure, as a fellow American in Oxford, and we probably would have had a great friendship. That's one of my regrets that I didn't actually do that. And so this contribution, I think, 
is not only the great work that he did editing Lewis's work and being so faithful in editing the letters and so forth, but also um, being a real pointer to, to C.S. Lewis in, in, in his own self-effacing way of being able to say, uh, look, here is the master, you know, his work needs to be uh, preserved and read. A another story about C.S. Lewis, which I think comes from, from Walter, is that C.S. Lewis was worried and if this story comes from anywhere, it must come from Walter, because, of course, he was there in the final months of Lewis's life. And that is that Lewis really believed that his works would all go out of out of print and there would be no money for his brother, Warney, who was a dependent uh, and the Gresham boys who were also dependent on him. Uh, and that marks is a mark of um, Lewis's humility, too, that there he was about to pass away and thinking uh, all those books that I've written, they'll, they'll just, you know, they'll go out of print and, and they'll be ground up and turned into paste or whatever. And um, of course, just the opposite has happened and, and his his reputation continues to grow and grow and he will be, we'll look back on him as one of the great minds of the, of the 20th century. He's already achieving that sort of status, but I'm sure that posterity will grant him that. And Walter uh, is one of the people who actually very steadily help Lewis's reputation and works to be in print and for that reputation to continue to grow. So Lewis's role, uh, sorry, Walter's role in that is really significant, especially, um, and I'll share with you something that I experienced when I went to Oxford in the late 1970s, that I expected going over there as a, as a Tolkien and Lewis fan, that Tolkien and Lewis would be sort of top of the charts. You know, everybody would be thinking, would find them popular. In fact, the establishment at Oxford uh, and the intellectual establishment in the Church of England and in England generally were doing their best to ignore and sideline Lewis and Tolkien at that time. It's really interesting how long it's taken even in England for those two to really achieve the fame and the status which they deserve. And even now there's a huge prejudice in, in the intellectual community against them. And, and Walter is the one who really helped to keep the, the flame alight. I'm sure others will be able to speak more eloquently about this and more knowledgeably than me, but that's certainly, um, from my point of view, Walter's great contribution. We'll now hear from Joseph Pierce, author of Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. Well, I first became aware of Walter Hooper's existence through his uh, the biography that he co-wrote with Roger Lasling Green, uh, one of the better Lewis biographies. But I first met him, uh, I think, probably in 1996, when I was doing research for my book, Literary Converts. And he very kindly agreed to meet me to discuss Lewis, but also Tolkien, of course, whom he knew. Um, and, 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 and this and that. We became very, very good friends thereafter. So he, he also helped me with my following book, which was uh, Tolkien, Man and Myth. There, thereafter, that from 1996 until 2001, when I moved to the States, we were good friends and we saw each other frequently and regularly. Obviously, having moved to the States, it's been less frequent. When I first knew him in, in 1996, he was in remarkably good shape. He had a, he, one of the rooms uh, in the house, uh, in his house in North Oxford, it was turned into a gym and he, he let me have a go at his bench press, which was, which was fun. So, uh, you know, he was actually in good shape physically. But of course, you know, the, the, his, his health deteriorated in the years after that. But uh, what I loved about him was, he, it was, was his friendliness. He, he struck me as a bit hobbit-like. 
I mean, you know, he'd invite people for tea and there'd be a pot of tea and, and, and it'd be very sort of actually very traditionally English, even though, of course, Walter was from North Carolina. And ironically, here I am in South Carolina and I am actually from England. So there you go. I think the most important thing about, about Walter Hooper's legacy uh, in the world of C.S. Lewis studies is twofold. In, in, in a general sense, I'm reminded of what he said when he met St. John Paul II in Rome, and he presented St. John Paul with a copy of something about Lewis that he'd worked on. I can't remember what now. And uh, when he gave this to St. John Paul II, the Pope, uh, his eyes lit up and he said, ah, he said, C.S. Lewis, he knew what his vocation was and he did it. And, and, and I think that what's true of C.S. Lewis is also true very much of Walter Hooper, that he knew what his vocation was and he did it. In other words, that he saw that his main calling in life was to be a champion of C.S. Lewis and to make the works of C.S. Lewis as widely known as possible, to be a great popularizer of them. So that's the general sense. Now, in the absolute scholarly sense, no lover of C.S. Lewis and no one who's done any serious scholarship on C.S. Lewis uh, will, will fail to see the crucial importance of the three volumes of uh, Lewis's collected letters that Walter Hooper painstakingly worked on over many years. And you just look at the size of that. I'm guessing, I haven't done the, the work page count, but I'm guessing uh, something like 4,000 or 5,000 pages of Lewis letters annotated. Uh, and then on top of that, we have the C.S. Lewis uh, Handbook and Guide, which was republished over here as the Complete Guide to C.S. Lewis, which is actually, if you want just the, the one-stop reference for, for finding something about Lewis, it can't be beaten. So on that popular level, and also on that very painstaking scholarly level with the letters, I mean, his, his contribution is, well, it's beyond comparison. A purely personal memory of Walter Hooper, for which I feel very grateful, is that it was on Walter Hooper's recommendation that Ignatius Press uh, approached me to write my book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. Uh, they'd asked Walter to write it initially, and he obviously would have been the better choice. Um, but he was working very hard on editing the letters at the time and not in a position to do it. But he recommended me as the person he thought would be ideal for such a book. So thanks be to Walter Hooper. I was given the excuse to spend all that time with C.S. Lewis, writing my book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, for which I'll be very grateful for him forever. And finally, we now hear from a father and son. Christopher Schenk was an undergraduate student at Jesus College, while Walter worked in the chaplaincy. And Christopher's son, Gabriel Schenk, is a lecturer in English literature at Signum University. I went up to Jesus College, Oxford as an undergraduate in October 1968. And Walter was then a, an Anglican clergyman. And he was working as the assistant chaplain in Jesus College. And he was very popular. Uh, the, the actual chaplain was an elderly theologian who seemed very remote from all of us. But Walter was much closer in age. I, I mean, I guess he was in his 30s then. And he struck us as being rather exotic, partly because of his Southern American accent, 
but also he wasn't really quite like the Anglican clergyman that we had known. He was much more lively and much more of an epicure, really. Uh, I do remember strongly that he always said how much he wanted to drink mint julep and to eat hominy grits. Um, I actually ate grits when I went to South Carolina to Charleston a few years ago. And for the life of me, I can't think why Walter was so keen on them. But I haven't, I haven't drunk a mint, mint julep yet, so that may explain things. I mean, we, we knew, of course, that he had been C.S. Lewis's secretary, but he didn't make a big thing of it. Though what he did was to bring as guests to the college various famous names. I mean, for example, Priscilla Tolkien. And for me, uh, the most interesting guest that he, he brought was Roger Lancelin Green, because um, I hadn't been particularly into Narnia books when I was a child, but I, I was particularly fond of Roger Lancelin Green's children's books about King Arthur and about the Greek myths. We knew Walter was rather special. I think we didn't quite know how special at that time, but he he was always very approachable. And as I say, I think to us seemed far more close to us in age than the rather ancient dons of the college, and in particular the, 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 the chaplain who was um, rather fuddy-duddy. I've seen him on and off over the years, but, but really the next time that our paths crossed is going on to Gabriel's story, because Gabriel, as a young boy, was a voracious reader, and he was very much into the Narnia books. And I, I remember when, when we went on, on holiday to the United States, and we went to Monhegan Island, which you may know, um, we walked all over the island and Gabriel, aged about eight or nine, I think, at the time, gave me a, a two-hour lecture on the way that all the Narnia books were interlinked. So I, I knew that he was going to be interested in meeting Walter Hooper. And we had the opportunity, um, my uh, father-in-law, P.H. Newby, had worked for the BBC and he had produced a talk that C.S. Lewis had given, which was broadcast in 1955. And after he died, we looked through a lot of his papers and we found what appeared to be a manuscript copy of, well, it's, it's not a manuscript, it's a typed copy, but it's got manuscript annotations on it. And we knew the handwriting wasn't his, but it was possible that the handwriting was C.S. Lewis's. So I took Gabriel along with me to visit Walter in the tiny little house that he lived in, in St. Bernard's Road. And perhaps I, at this point, I should let Gabriel carry on with the story. So uh, the first time I met Walter was in uh, 1997, and we visited him, as my father says, uh, to check on this TypeScript document with manuscript editions. Uh, Walter was able to confirm that it was C.S. Lewis's handwriting. Of course, this was before the collected letters 
had come out and really before the internet um, properly. So we couldn't just look up this information. Having done the collected letters now, you can look up PH Newby and you can find the whole correspondence. And C.S. Lewis even says, I'm going to send you this copy of my talk with my own edits on it. So we know exactly how that came about and we and we know exactly um when that was because it's in the collected letters but back then uh we didn't have that resource so we just asked walter and so we visited him in his house and i was a 10 year old boy kind of in love with narnia and sort of imaginative enough that i thought narnia might be a real place and this idea wasn't dispelled by walter who had a map of uh, narnia in italy on his wall um because Lewis got the idea for the name of Narnia from uh, a real place in Italy. And Walter had that map of the real place on his wall as if it were um, a real place. So it, the kind of fantasy and reality was sort of blending for me. So it was very magical uh, meeting him. I, I, my memory was that Walter talked about meeting someone when he was my age. And the only thing he said you could remember from that meeting was that they had enormous cake. And so he speculated that the only thing I would be able to remember as I grew older was a cake, but we didn't have a cake. We just had biscuits. Uh, we had digestive biscuits, which Walter waxed lyrical about and said that the most wonderful biscuits, um, because you can eat them with as savory uh, with cheese, or you can eat them sweet with chocolate. And just to explain to the American listeners why biscuits, we mean cookies. And they're a bit like graham crackers, digestive biscuits. They're not the most exciting thing. But anyway, that's what we ate. And we had a lovely uh, tea. And Walter had a cat who I can't remember the name of, but it was some very long name. It was something like King Leopold, the second Duke of Normandy. It was something like that. Very, very long. And Walter said, uh, people tell me I spoil this cat. And it's true. I do spoil him, but it's a pleasure spoiling him. And that's kind of been my cat philosophy ever since. I, I also enjoy spoiling cats. I, I was really struck, actually, when I had tea with him with the kind of, I felt there was a kind of art, art of conversation. He was very, very good at moderating discussion. I don't know whether that was a Southern United States thing, whether that was him personally, or whether that was something that, again, he was sort of carrying on from the Inklings. I think he was very um, taken by the Inklings the pub conversations, uh, which he did go along to. And he did try, he, at one point, he talked about trying to revive those, like in the 70s or something, with so, like Owen Barfield and like some other people. Um, but I, I think there was a kind of, I think he was he was a great conversationalist. And there, there is a, it, like conversation as an art form was something that I kind of experienced with Walter. Like the way that you talk to people and bring up subjects and you sort of bring out the, the best qualities in other people through your conversation. It's a very C.S. Lewis idea. Again, I think this is what they would say God does, and they're kind of just following God, um, but they did it as humans. Uh, so you kind of felt like you were shining in conversation with uh, them. I mean, I'm saying that as if I've had conversation with C.S. Lewis, but certainly I felt I was shining in conversation with Walter Hooper. He had a way of kind of raising you up in the conversation uh, and sort of very, very adept at that as well. That's a rare thing as well. You can talk to people, but having a really good conversation is quite rare. And I think you always got a good one with Walter, whether or not it was about cats. Flash forward to my undergraduate time at Aberystwyth University, where 
I sort of rediscovered C.S. Lewis, not just as the writer of the Narnia series, but as a literary critic. And I found that I could actually use one of my favorite authors in my essays. You know, I could use Preface to Paradise Lost or whatever. Uh, and so uh, I kind of fell back in love with C.S. Lewis all over again and ended up writing my undergraduate dissertation on C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. So my memory is that my father just wrote a letter to Walter Hooper reminding him of the connection and saying, perhaps we could visit. And he said, yes. Or anyway, just sort of introducing himself. And he said, yes, come over for tea. And so we had tea with him. He'd moved by then. He, he, he By this point, he was in North Oxford, which is where he was uh, up until the end of his life in a lovely apartment with Greek statues and photographs of him with C.S. Lewis and, and the rest of it. Um, and a, a lovely cat as well, Blessed Lucy of Narnia. So yeah. there was always a cat. He was telling me about a, a particular cat who had helped him through difficult times in his life. And he said, if I get into heaven, my first question is, where is he? And so when in the day that Walter passed away, I kind of remember that story. Um, thinking that's uh, that's what Walter was doing at that time, um, and I also at the time thought how humble he was to say, "If I get into heaven," because frankly, if Walter doesn't get into heaven, then there's no hope for the rest of us. And uh, I also remember him talking about visiting places on holiday. I think with his one of his godsons, and with these very steep hills, and he could always be encouraged to get to the top of the hill if the other person said. Come on, Walter, there's a cat up here. Walter would run up to, to find the cat. And, uh, you know, reflecting on Walter uh, after his passing, I, I, my feeling is that he was passing on a lot of the kindness of C.S. Lewis, you know, because just as we wrote to him or my dad wrote to him and were invited to tea, that's basically what Walter did with Lewis. And Lewis was very generous with his time and his friendship and so was Walter I think the way they would both see it was that they were doing the Christian thing they were passing on God's kindness but um exactly where that kindness comes from and that love comes from I don't know but certainly uh Walter was following in C.S. Lewis's footsteps in being kind to people who were contacting him and he didn't need to be like that it's pretty difficult to just send a letter to most people, let alone get a response, let alone get invited to tea, let alone be encouraged to keep on coming and uh, keep in contact through email. Because he gave me his, his email address then. And uh, I uh, emailed him a question about my dissertation. I said, I'm thinking of writing this dissertation about what connects all the Space Trilogy books. And Walter wrote back and said, Lewis's own response was that he was inspired by the imaginative man inside him and he sent me the actual letter transcript so I could just, you know, plonk it into my dissertation as an appendix. Uh, it was very, very easy. And then after I finished my dissertation, which was just a, you know, bog standard undergraduate dissertation, I remember Walter uh, took a copy of it and, uh, and asked me to sign it for him and put it in his archive and said, you are now a C.S. Lewis scholar which was really kind. I've made me feel very grand, like I was, maybe I am a C.S. Lewis scholar. But looking back now, I, I, I kind of recognize that that was him being very kind and, and uh, not gatekeeping or not um, putting up barriers or anything like that, sort of really kind of encouraging people to uh, join the conversation about C.S. Lewis. Since then, I've sometimes found myself 
thinking, oh, that person calls themselves a scholar, but they haven't actually written any books or they haven't written any articles. And then I have to stop myself and think, well, I was a C.S. Lewis scholar to Walter having just done an undergraduate dissertation. So if Walter Hooper was saying I was a C.S. Lewis scholar, then I need to carry that kindness forward and, and make sure that I'm not being snobbish or putting up barriers to anyone else. You know, I'm, I'm going to try and follow his lead and, and encouraging people as he was following the lead that C.S. Lewis had shown him, I think. I think I bumped into him at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society when I started my PhD and he said, are you giving a talk at the society? And I thought, why would I give a talk? I'm, I'm not important enough. But again, it was that characteristic support and uplifting of other people. And I did end up giving a talk after I'd finished my PhD, by which time I felt sort of qualified enough to speak at that august society. And I gave a talk about C.S. Lewis and King Arthur. And I went to the Bodleian to look at C.S. Lewis's papers because they have in a notebook the beginning of a poem about Lancelot written by C.S. Lewis. And so I was able to see this poem myself and I wanted to take a photograph of it to use in my talk to point out the beautiful handwriting. And I uh, went up to the um, librarian and I said, am I allowed to, to photograph this? And they said, well, uh, we'll have a look. And they they looked on the computer system. It wasn't on the computer system. So they said, well, it predates computers. So then they looked in their dusty old filing system. They pulled out a card that said, no photocopying allowed. And I said, does that include photographs? And they said, well, I think this card was written before photography was possible in libraries. You better ask the copyright holder. And then they sort of said this with a finality as if that was the end of the matter, because how on earth would I get in touch with the person who, who could give me permission? Um, but luckily that person was Walter Hooper. And I said, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll email Walter, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, I was so proud of that connection. And I uh, emailed Walter and he came back very quickly and said, of course, you can photograph it. And it sounds like a great talk. And so I was able to photograph it and use it in my talk. And Walter turned up for that talk as well. I didn't ask him to, but he he found out about it or he, he knew when it was happening and he wanted to uh, support me, I think, even though, we, you know, we weren't that close. I mean, I, I thought very highly of him, um, but he didn't, you know, again, he didn't need to. Uh, there were so many other people he was he was connected to, um, but he he wanted to support me, and uh, he came to my talk, and that was a little bit scary because in the talk I was saying things like C.S. Lewis thought this and C.S. Lewis said that, and I was aware that Walter all he had to say was I remember Jack saying the opposite of what you just said, and my whole argument would have unraveled. But luckily he didn't say anything like that, even if it had been true. I think he would have um, not said that because he wanted to support me. And um, he was encouraging me before I gave the talk. He said, I don't think this talk has ever been given before. I don't think anyone's talked about C.S. Lewis and King Arthur. And I said, oh, good. Um, that's a relief. It sort of takes the pressure off. And he said, oh, yes, it doesn't need to be good. It just, you know, because you're the first. So you can say whatever you like. It doesn't need to be good. And that was, that was nice. It did actually take the pressure off. <laughs> and then at the end, he said, uh, I, I liked it when it ended, which <laughs> I think he meant he liked the ending. I, I'm sure that's what he meant. But it was, he, you know, he had a he had a great sense of humor as well. And um, really, really, really nice to see him there. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. And he was really, really supportive. We'd like to thank all of the guests who agreed to participate in this tribute to Walter Hooper and the tribute 
isn't quite over yet. We still have one more episode, and we end where we began, over at William O'Flaherty's podcast, All About Jack, where there's going to be one more episode, where he's going to be interviewing even more people who loved Walter Hooper. But before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to share a Lewis quotation. Now, William has actually produced a book called The Misquotable C.S. Lewis, where he debunks many of the false quotations that are attributed to Lewis on the internet. And a common one is, there are far, far better things ahead. And this quotation is used to support the idea that tomorrow is going to be better. But not only is this quotation not quite right, it misses the important context. It comes from Letters to an American Lady. Lewis had been writing to a lady called Mary, and she thought that she would soon be dying, and she was expressing her fear to him. And Lewis's reply is probably one of my favorite letters. And since we're talking in the context of Walter Hooper going to glory, I couldn't think of a better way to end this episode. Pain is terrible, but surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us does more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind.